LA is vast, vibrant, simultaneously stunning, as well as challenging and confusing. At Together LA, this city is our passion. We know that loving LA well starts with listening, pounding the pavement in search of the individuals invested in the flourishing of Los Angeles. These are the inspiring stories and real life interviews with the men and women who work to bring the gospel to LA in their unique ways. Thanks for joining us as we bring you closer to the heart of LA, one story, one voice, one neighborhood at a time. We are Tommy and Jojo, and this is the Together LA Listening Tour. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Listening Tour, which is Together LA's podcast. And I am here with Johanna Tropiano. Johanna, welcome. Hi, everyone. And so now we also get a chance to interview uh, a unique person with a history. He's a quarterback on a major uh, NCAA, former uh, quarterback on NCAA team. He has was a lawyer. He's a business person. Russell Jorkman. Russell, welcome. Thank you. It's great to see you guys, Tommy, Johanna. Well, Russell is also part of the board for Together LA, so it's an honor having him on there. Hey, Russell, talk a little bit about what you're up to these days. What part of LA do you live in and what does life look like now during this COVID-19? Sure. Thanks. Um, so I live in Santa Monica, uh, which is, I love all of LA, uh, having been at USC in the 90s and appreciating all the different neighborhoods. Um, I have the privilege uh, probably of being one of the few people whose lives is not that interrupted because my wife and I work from home anyways. And so, you know, my, my day is not that different. I get to spend time with my daughter in the morning. Um, she's about two years old. So it's really a great uh, privilege and chance to spend time with her, and especially before she goes to, you know, off to school, uh, you know, work from home in, in the home office um, and spend time with her in the afternoon. So really, um, the way my wife and I are trying to think about this time is like a push or an impetus of, you know, what have we been trying to accomplish or do or get out um, that we have been been waiting on or sitting on and using that energy turning that energy from kind of negative and fretfulness to, you know, how can we use this extra time at home? Because although I work from home, I used to travel a lot for different conferences and things. And I definitely obviously haven't been traveling. So how can I use that extra time to, you know, push something forward we want to accomplish as a family? I love that. Um, it's interesting how much of a similar boat we're in because as you know, we also have a two-year-old. <laughs> and so um, working from home and navigating all of that and thinking through you know, where we want to be on the backside of this as a family and, and how do we want to say we've spent our, our days? It's, it's so good and such a worthy, a worthy, um, worthy question. Talk a little bit about your journey. We've heard some from what Tommy has said, but, um, you know, you went to USC for undergrad, UPenn, you got your JD and MBA and you've lived in many places all over the world. Um, what was your original plan coming out of, out of undergrad? Yeah. So I think of, my life, maybe, maybe three or four tracks. Um, so when I was a kid, um, I was actually training to be a professional athlete. We had a batting cage in our backyard in Miami. Um, I played football at SC and that was a very specific path. And I loved playing football at SC. It didn't, didn't work out kind of to become a professional athlete, uh, great program, great people. And so at that point I shifted more academics and more corporate path. And so I had the chance, um, to do JD MBA at Penn. Uh, which was a, you know, USC was great. Penn was great. And, you know, I think I was trying to, um, I was always trying to learn, learn both 
from the cities I lived in and, and educationally. And so that's really the path that led me to London and then Hong Kong. Um, in London, I had a chance where I was at a point in my career where I really had to buckle down and try to make partner if that was what I wanted to do. And I realized if I did that, I'd be committed probably in my view to kind of London for five or six more years. And I was at a point in my life where I wanted to, to learn and explore Asia. And so I made the point really to choose kind of cultural broadening over trying to rise in the career, if you will. And I think I, you know, lucky or not, I've been lucky that it's played out in the sense that Asia experience has become more and more important. So that, that was, uh, I think a good, a good choice in retrospect. You know, after having been a corporate lawyer for 10 years, it's a, it's a really difficult path. And if it's kind of your calling, it's a really a point about balancing your time because it, it's a really, it, like I said, it just is, it takes a lot out of you. For me, I didn't really feel it was my calling. So then it was about the right time to exit, how to think about what I did next. So my, my third path was kind of probably exploring, looking at kind of the social impact space, looking at the finance space, praying, spending time with family, uh, having the privilege of spending some time and getting married. Um, and, and through that, I really refined my focus on basically finance and impact. And so that's what led to Sovereign's Capital. And then, you know, now I'm also looking at doing um, real estate finance, real estate investment uh, around the world that marries financial and spiritual returns. But yeah, that's how I kind of see my career in a few, few different stages. One question before impact investing, you talked a lot about calling during your time as a lawyer in London. For some people who are listening in, they've been, they may be at their job, they may be stuck at their job. How did you know corporate, being a corporate lawyer wasn't your calling? Like I just li literally had a conversation with a young girl in Jakarta who says, I just want to travel around the world because my current job is not my calling. And my parents are telling me it's a terrible idea. How do you just walk away from corporate law, what you study, and realize that wasn't your calling and walk into something else? There's, it's such a rich question in so many ways to answer it. So my answer will be necessarily incomplete. Um, you know, I would start with the premise that, you know, even in the midst of COVID, when we're recording this, you know, in May, that it does make you reflect that we're privileged to have jobs, right? And much of the, much of Los Angeles, where we sit with Together LA and much of the world is not even privileged to have a job. And so I think, or has a temporary job or is in a gig economy and really struggling. And so I think, I think on the one hand, you want to start with the premise of humility that, you know, a lawyer in Jakarta or a lawyer in London or a lawyer in New York who complains, um, you know, still has the privilege of, you know, probably being in the top five or 10% of the world economically. So I think we want to start with you. I think it's for me, it's been part of my journey is kind of to start with humility um, or maybe to learn to do that better. Within that context, I think that there's never, you know, not being the world's greatest historian, but it seems to me there's never a greater time in the history of the world where you can make money doing anything, mm -hmm. doing doing video games. You know, I'm an advisor to a friend who does virtual reality, um, doing video games, doing esports, doing uh, doing YouTube videos, doing anything. That's obviously a far cry from corporate law, and I didn't, you know, I I would love to tell you I'm now making a million dollars a year and I have 10 million YouTube followers, but that's not that's not where my path led. Uh, but the point is just the world is is open, expansive. It looks for people um, who have authenticity. It looks for people who are experts. It looks for people who speak to them with certainty, right? And there's a few ways I could say that. But um, so I would say that the um, 
you know, when I left law, it was 2000 and, uh, 2011. So the U S was just coming through when I left full-time law, the U S was just coming through kind of the 2008, 2009 recession, which lasted a while. And my mom did say to me, you know, what are you doing? It's hard to find jobs. Da, da, da. And I said, look, you know, I have a JD MBA from Penn and I don't have a mortgage and I'm not married. Like I'm, it's going to be okay. Right. I'll be able to find something. And so it was an element of decoupling with, I have to make X amount of money Got it. because if you desire that certainty, then law is a very, very good way for that certainty to make X amount of money. If you can decouple from that, at least just a little bit and say, I'm okay making less money or I'm okay with, with more uncertainty. There's a few ways again to say that. I think that opens the door. Um, and I, so for me, for me, knowing law was on my calling was actually pretty simple. I loved different elements of it, the international side, the camaraderie, working on a team, whether it's a football team or a corporate team, which is a little different from working from home, even though I'm on a team here. Um, so I, I was pretty sure it wasn't my calling for some time. And it was really about finding the right kind of path, appropriate means to exit, kind of right path for me. You know, I actually I haven't done this a ton in my life, but, you know, I did like spend a lot of time praying and fasting. And when I did that, I actually I physically felt a push on my back to leave law. And so that was pretty strong affirmation for me. But honestly, before I did that, I felt it just wasn't right fit. Again, like tremendous, there are tremendous Christian lawyers out there. But for me, it wasn't the right fit. Um, and part of the initial kind of spark was that my father um, passed away unexpectedly. And so one of the mm. things, that's a whole separate kind of discussion. But one of the things I think that can come from tragedy is the um, kind of appreciation of what you have and the reanalysis of your life in a good way, right? You kind of, what people talk about life short, what do I want to do? And if you can use that and not fall in a pity party and use that kind of like I'm talking about COVID and what, it, what is that? How can you take that energy and learn from it? Like, like uh, John, Johanna was saying, like, what do I want to accomplish as a family out of this? What do I want to accomplish out of this tragedy? Um, good things can come. I mean, I left law maybe, maybe a year and a half after my dad passed. It wasn't like I was having that discussion a day later to be clear, but it was the genesis for changes that I knew I had wanted to make for probably a couple of years. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I love so much of what you said um, in that. Uh, one thing that really struck me was the idea of relating calling to humility first. And I don't know that I've ever really thought of it in those terms before, but I think that that is so good because um, if, if we are truly humble, if we can remain humble, even in the seasons where we're maybe not walking in what we think is our calling, that is all going to be used. You, you know, it's all going to be used for that time when we can then step into it. Um, if we have been faithful to that, that call, you know, and walking in that call in humility and, um, and, and it's just going to give us so much, you know, a wealth of so much more experience that then we can bring into the time and the space when the calling is, is there. And I think that that's so good. And I love the idea of calling being linked to humility. Um, I think a lot of, especially like millennial, not millennial so much, but Gen Z, you know, these younger people that are like, I've got to be doing my calling. I've got to be, I'm not going to do anything but my calling. You know, it's like, whoa, let's talk about humility first. <laughs> you know, um, the calling will definitely come. <laughs> 
Hey, Russell, let me ask you a quick question. I mean, you and I, I, I'm very familiar with the work of Sovereign's Capital. I travel to Jakarta quite a lot, about five or six times a year, seeing the impact of it. You mentioned that you're sitting there in London and you want to explore Asia. For those who are not familiar, why why Asia? Why was it so strategic? Why, why was it on the foreground of what you wanted to do? Um, it's very interesting. I think that having grown up in the U.S., having lived in Miami, which is, you know, very strong Latin American culture, having had the chance to, to do deals, kind of uh, some deals in Africa, a lot of deals in, in Eastern Europe and in kind of Europe, main Europe uh, or Western Europe, if you will, from London. Um, you know, I think Asia was economic. It was clear that Asia was growing, was important. Uh, you know, the first time I was in Asia was in uh, 99. The first time I kind of worked there was 2005. And you know, I talk to people all the time that have been there for 20, 30 years that were, you know, two decades uh, before me. But it was still, it was still, you know, the 2000s, I think, were when it really kind of hit the world stage economically. Uh, you know, at Wharton in 2000, we did a trip to China for the summer to give you an idea how much the world has changed. You know, we met with the head of Kodak China, right? Mm -hmm. Either head of Kodak China or Kodak Asia. Um, and you think like, you know, Kodak doesn't even exist anymore. So it was um, a knowledge that there was a, di a, way, a different way to do business, um, a growing space, and really just a part of the world that I wasn't familiar with, not having grown up on the, the West Coast. You know, one of the strengths of California is obviously Pacific Rim and a lot of, you know, people with Asian backgrounds and culturally understanding it, maybe have, having family from, from the region. But I didn't really understand it well. I knew it was going to be important. I'd spent a enough time there to to think it would be really interesting having you know been there for chunks in 99 and things like that um you know and then what what drives it right you mentioned kind of for people who aren't that familiar uh you know one thing is is demographics right i think the the fundamental thing is demographics and youthful population right that's what makes indonesia very interesting um Japan is obviously a very mature country, but it struggles with some demographic issues. Demographics, then as the population starts to become more, is and is and becomes more and more educated. Uh, when you look at examples of what Korea did, you know, from what Korea was in 1945 after the war, or maybe in the 50s after the, you know, the U.S. Uh, war or conflict with Korea until now, um, you look at younger population, you look at spending power increasing, you look at technological um prowess which is increasing you know it used to they used to say in china that they would you know copy every tech coming out of the u.s and of course that is a real issue and still exists but living in hong kong we did deals for companies that were inventing technologies and filing patents and we would say oh my goodness um china can manufacture you know these kind of high-tech things re relating to phones and electrical uh components electronic components but now they're filing pat this company's filing patents you know this this is a real powerhouse um so it's a combination of i think each of those things yeah R russell talk a little bit about uh specifically jakarta indonesia where a bulk of sovereign's capital investments are johanna i love jakarta for those who are listening who are not familiar with jakarta indonesia is the fourth biggest country in terms of population in all of the world about thirteen thousand islands Jakarta itself has about 11.6 million people, but the startup scene, the businesses, many of these young leaders came to the States and now have gone back. It is just a unique city where they're still trying to figure out where they're selling. They just literally rebuilt their airport. 
They just built a mass rail transit system. It feels like everything is just starting to come in, and the dollar is still strong where you could put a lot of investment. Russell, I'm taking care of, but talk a little bit about why Jakarta and why what you guys are doing there. Sure, I think you've uh, you, you've answered you've answered a lot of it, but I think when you look at Asia, and in some ways you can you know maybe divide it into sections, and of course you know sovereigns is a great fund, but we're not a huge fund, and so you know you want to you want to pick a space that works, you want to pick a space where you have relationships and where you think you can succeed, and so um, you know China is a unique a unique beast and um, valuations are very high. Obviously, if you hit it well in China, you know, you, you can make a ton of money. The market's very big. There's big players there. And so, you know, China uh, wasn't the right fit for us. We did look at China initially, but, you know, we really started looking more at Malaysia and Indonesia, at Southeast Asia. And so um, part of the story of Indonesia is what I mentioned earlier is this rising middle class. And so when you have a rising middle class combined with education, um, then you can have some a real fertile investment ground is I think how I would say it right and so you you know maybe there's other countries that are really interesting um, but don't have all the components around education maybe that but maybe they don't have all the components around demographics or maybe to invest in Thailand you also need a, a company that's also in doing work in Thailand and Vietnam you know both of which are great and fascinating countries but even the complexity of you know going across the border from Thailand to Vietnam so I think it was, you know, all of those things. And, and it was, you know, it was providential, right? Luke, Luke Rausch, who co-founded Sovereigns, uh, was actually living in Malaysia and exploring the region and connected with some people, uh, Kevin and David, in, in, in Indonesia, who, you know, led him to Jakarta. And he got to know that, net, that network and really felt that was providential and the right fit for Sovereigns. Uh, and we've been privileged to have some really interesting uh, companies there. We're investors in... Um, Grab Taxi, which is kind of like the Uber of Southeast Asia. Yep. It replaced um, Uber in Asia too. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, you know, Zendit, which is, you know, kind of money, money sending platform. Um, so there's, you know, there's a, a few really interesting deals that we're able to, to see there. I think one of our, um, I think one of the, one of our earliest exits was a, um, was a ticket platform mm-hmm. similar to Ticketmaster, which again, you can see these themes of like, you know, rise, uh, emerging middle class, um, you know, consumers in some cases. So yeah, it's, it's panned out well for us. I have a, a follow-up question to that and, and looking at um, the different countries and different areas where you're really interested in investing. Um, do you guys look at, um, at like what qualities do you look for in leaders of, of the companies that you're investing in? Does that, that play into how you make yeah. a decision at all? There's, um, well, it's, it's a key component, possibly the the most important component, um, you know, generally people think about leaders, uh, industry and product, and, and you have different arguments about what comes first. I'm not sure that anybody says product comes first. I think some people might say industry comes first, meaning if you're, you know, kind of a rising tide raises all ships. And if you're in a huge space, there's a lot of room to maneuver. I think most, most investors, most venture capitalists would say that, um, founders come first. And I would agree with that. Um, you know, I think that it's some people will say you don't want you don't want someone who's succeeded before because they have less kind of drive the second time, which is an interesting thesis because you might initially say, well, they learned the first time, so they should be better the second time. So some people will say that, that um, you know, I think of from the way sovereigns wants to kind of marry impact and financial returns. 
you know, so impact and for, for us, the founder's ability to love, love on their employees, love on the cities that they're in and do business well, mm-hmm. right? I think that that's most important and a kind of headline and how that plays out is I would say maybe, maybe three things uh, for the founder grit, which is kind of, it's the problem with grit is it's hard to tell maybe initially, right? You invest, but you figure out if they have grit two years later when things are difficult because yeah. there, you know, there's, there's never been a startup that didn't have some kind of difficult time. Um, I think the ability, the second thing I would say is the ability to tell us to tell a story. And the third is to build a team and two and three are related, right? Because you are, if you grow, you very quickly should not be the one doing everything. And, you know, story, you look at like how Jesus, you know, shared, shared his message, you know, story is really how you can most effectively, um, share the message, not, not like make believe story, but like, you know, you know, you can pitch, this is what we're doing. This is how we're changing the world. Yeah. So I think that that's, that's how I think about it. And honestly, everyone in the team might give a slightly different perspective, but hopefully not dramatically different. Uh, here's another question is what were the qualities of uh, the companies? What, what components of a com- company do you look for in a potential investment? What are the things that says, man, they actually have a pretty good uh, potential. Yeah. For, for us and there's so many different ways to think about investing and you know we don't we don't define ourselves normally as an impact investor to be clear but but we try to have a lot of uh, positive impact in the communities and and positive impact spiritually um so it, it depends a lot on the stage for us we try to be growth stage and so what that means is we're we're investing into growth and so we want to see that people have uh have an idea they're getting what's you know the magic word of traction and um, that they have thought out their idea well enough. You know, we typically look at companies with 500,000 of revenue. So, you know, that's a real company that has, has um, shown that the market accepts it, um, is really interested. And we're interested in, you know, how can we help them accelerate growth? How can we think, that, think about them hiring, you know, professional leadership team how, or, you know, kind of additional salespeople? How can we really grow? Um, so, so for us, you know, certain industries is very is very important. Certain um, uh, certain um, formulas like you know cost of customer acquisition and things like that, and how hard it is. You know, if you if you have to advertise on Google AdWords and spend you know uh, five thousand dollars to get a customer, and that customer spends five thousand dollars a year, but is gone after a year, you know, that's not necessarily a good trade. So, so you know, it can be it can be technical. It's both technical in that sense, and then it's looking at themes of the world, looking at themes of um, tech companies and competitors, and comparing them. But it's term, in terms of industries, you know, it's it's a lot of kind of typical VC industries, software as a service, certain consumer focused, you know, certain kind of broadly speaking ed tech. Um, yes, I mean seeing growth industries, and the point to tie it to what I was saying earlier, you know, that's a specific focus: growth stage venture capital. The some venture capitalists will be earlier stage and you can just show up with an idea and three really smart people and get funding. And that's a different focus and a dis- different r- risk profile. And there's some great people in LA that run accelerators and do that. Like, like Mucker comes to mind. Um, and then, you know, other people who are in impact and they're happy investing in a business. That's a solid business. That's not growing you know, 50, hundred percent a year, but it's been around for five years and it's solid and it's growing 10% a year and they want, 
kind of more steady income. So, you know, the, the world of investment is very broad, but that's how we, that's how, that's where we try to focus. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about um, your investing. I am curious, you know, cause you're, you're serving on the board of together LA you're living in, in Santa Monica. Um, when we talk about loving the city well, and, um, and you've said this a couple of times in the interview of, of being a student of the city or, you know, wanting to learn, how does that come in? How do you see yourself fitting into that in, in the city of Los Angeles? Are there philanthropic things you're interested in? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that, um, thank you. I think one of the interesting parts of Together LA and as we, as we grow and explore and kind of refine how we can serve the city, um, you know, one of the challenges of LA is it's so diverse uh, in terms of number of cities, right? I think, uh, don't necessarily mean, you know, racially, but just in terms of number of cities and all the ideas and the difference between, uh, you know, what you'd overhear at a lunch um, in Pasadena versus a lunch in Hollywood versus a lunch in uh, Santa Monica mm -hmm. is is pretty different. And so, you know, how how can we come as Together LA and how can we speak into some of the um, headline themes in the city, whether it's um, whether it's job growth and kind of economic um, economic prosperity, um, how can we speak into homelessness? How can we speak into some of the big themes? And I think that's what's interesting about Together LA is to is to maybe provide some leadership or some support or some guidance um, and get the word out about some of the good good that's being done. I, th I do think that um, it is, you know, the problems in LA uh, are a difficult challenge and California is so magical in some ways. And it's part of what has led to the creation of so many interesting companies. And there's also, there's also struggles. Um, and so I, you know, I live in Santa Monica, you know, Santa Monica and Venice are famous for having homeless issue. And so, you know, how do you speak from my personal perspective is how do you speak that into that hmm. in sustainable ways um, that are a win-win for the community and the people you're trying to help and are neither, I neither an extreme of, um, immediate help. That's not sustainable in the long run, either because of costs, like the reality is cities have budgets just like everyone else. And Santa Monica is cutting a lot of money because of the COVID crisis and a lot of cities are going to cut it. So how do we create a solution? That's a real solution that is, um, that can be, um, sustainable and also provides, you know, immediate support. And I think that's a difficult balance, but I, I do, I do wish that people would start taking that approach around some of the bigger problems. Got so, it. you know, what Andy's doing downtown at Union Rescue Mission and how he thinks about um, helping people at scale and, you know, what that looks like facility wise and, you know, what can you do? Um, you know, if you have $20 million, you know, is the right approach to buy a building in Santa Monica that's 5,000 square feet or to buy a building uh, in a, in a different part of the County that's 20,000 square feet and what can you do? And, you know, and again, these are difficult things to be clear, but, but how can we help people in a sustainable manner, recognizing that the different perspectives of, of homeowners of, of the homeless, you know, in that example, but we can apply it to other things that each like, how can we respect each perspective? And, and say there's some value in that and come up with a sustainable solution. Because if we go all in on one thing and we ignore people, eventually it just comes back to bite you. 
Yeah. Right. If we do, if we do uh, an extreme version and we do nothing, and we just, you know, we just don't help the people because not necessarily homeless anyone because we don't want to help them or we don't want to spend any money. You know, that comes back to bite you in 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 one way, uh, mm-hmm. and it's negative for the economy. And it's not, you know, as a Christian, I don't think it's what we're called for. And yet, if we spend all of our money on everything in a non-financially sustainable way, uh, in a non-fiscally responsible way, um, that's not sustainable either, right? We see that with churches kind of running amok and charities running amok with money. So, you know, I would like to see people thinking about like really solving problems, respecting everyone in a sustainable way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Russell, as we wrap up, let me ask you one final question is, as you talk through all that, I love the whole conversation about sustainability. Do you find that, and I think business leaders and Christian marketplace leaders will definitely understand, do the churches understand where you're coming from or do they, it, it still is taking time for them to process it or are more and more churches picking up what you're talking about in terms of sustainability? So I, I go to a great church in Santa Monica. I won't, I won't specifically name it because by answering the question, I might, um, you know, maybe they are doing something really, really great that, um, that I'm not aware of. I generally think, without speaking specifically to the church I go to, I generally think um, people are very emotional, le- emotion led in in what they are doing, and that speaks to Hong Kong and it speaks to the LA and what have you. And I think it's important to add more um, fiscal sustainability and define goals more specifically. Got it. Got it. Got it. Right? Got it. Add, yeah, yeah. I think that they would be better at that. Um, I think that would be better that, you know, the churches, the things in LA are incredible. Yep. Um, there's this story. I actually heard it today on a different podcast that relates to doctors and they say doctor, but you can see how it would tie to charities. Doctors are famous. There's somebody drowning in the river. They jump in the river. They save the drowning. They save the person drowning person. They get out of the river. There's, there's two more floating down the river. They jump back in the river, save the people, get back out. As soon as they get back out of the river, there's five more in the river. Okay. So they're exhausted. They never have the time to go upstream and see who's throwing all these people in the river. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, I, if you think about it that way and you can't, you can't just write off a generation of people. You can't just say, I'm going to solve the problem. And I'm going to like, you have to do both is the point, mm-hmm. right? There are people right now hurting. How do we help them? And yet the hurting for the most part, a lot of complicated answers, but for the most part, there, is, there are three or four key causes. So how can we help the people today and how can we address the causes so yeah. that we don't have five people tomorrow. And yeah. I think if you're not thinking about both, um, you should be thinking about both. I'll just put it that way. Johanna, excellent. Okay. Russell, excellent, excellent, excellent interview, Russell. Thank you for your insights. Yeah, it was really Thank good. You. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Great to talk to both of you. Yeah. Hey, ne- at the next podcast, we're going to talk about your football days at USC, but okay. we're going to talk about that. <laughs> hey, for more information, go to togetherla.net and Instagram together underscore LA on Instagram as well too. Russell, Johanna, have a wonderful day. Thank you for all your help and your service and your love for the city. Awesome. Thank you. See you, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Together LA Listening Tour. To stay connected, make sure you subscribe to the Together LA channel, rate and review this episode, and make sure to share on your social media platforms. We would love for you to follow along with Together LA on Instagram, Facebook, and our website at www.togetherla.net. See you next time.